Good morning. My name is Rick and it's my privilege to read to you the scriptures this morning. We're going to be reading in 1 Peter and we'll be beginning at the first verse. So 1 Peter chapter 1. Before we read, let's ask the Lord to help us to hear and understand his word. Father, thank you for your word. Help us now to hear it and to understand it, for we ask in Jesus' name. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Two, God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercies, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of these things that have now been told to you by those who've preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Say I met you for the first time in a social setting and I asked you to tell me about yourself, what would you say? Now, if it was me, I'd probably say something like, I'm married to Sue, we've been married for over 40 years, I've got three children, Ben, Kate, David, they're married to Elaine, Richard and Maddie. I have five exceptional grandchildren because grandparents are allowed to be totally one-eyed about their grandchildren. Uh, I'm a pastor of a church 
Uh, when I was younger, up until about the age of 30, I had flaming red hair. I back for an AFL team that's currently languishing on the bottom of the ladder. What about you? Well, say I tweaked the question just a bit and I asked you to tell me the event or the issue that's had the most impact on your life. Now, that's a different question, isn't it? It's a deeper question. What would you say? When my mother was almost 80 years old, I took her on a holiday to Sydney. We were driving down one of the main streets in the city and she suddenly burst into tears. Now, I, I asked her what was wrong and she told me a secret. It was something that had profoundly shaped her life. She kept this secret from her children, her grandchildren and her friends for 80 years. She was adopted. Now, for me, it was one of those aha moments. It had profoundly affected her sense of security, confidence and identity. And given the era that she grew up in, it was something she felt ashamed about. She knew the love of her adopted mother, but she lived with questions about why her natural mother and father didn't want her. Now, when we turn to the letter of 1 Peter, it's written to Christians to powerfully shape their sense of identity and self-understanding. It's a letter written to believers who are located on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire in about 64 AD. Uh, you can see it there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Notice what it says. It's to believers in the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, not Asia as we know it, but an area on the northern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And it's addressed to followers of Jesus who were living in societies that had no interest in Jesus and rejected what the believers stood for. It was a culture where disciples of Jesus were not just treated with indifference, but seemed to be subversive and even undermining of the values of the Roman Empire. But can I say this letter is just as relevant for 21st century Australian Christians as it was for 1st century believers. We know what it's like to belong to a minority group, to be treated with indifference, to be seen as quaint, or old-fashioned or odd, and even to be seen as having harmful and socially repugnant views. Now this letter, it has powerful application to us and it shapes our self-understanding as we negotiate what it feels like to be sidelined or hated for no other reason than because we're Christians. The big idea of the letter, it's captured in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Turn to it with me. Notice what he says. I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. In this letter, Peter reminds us about the wonderful grace of God, his kindness to us. And this grace is meant to shape our identity, our purpose, and our behaviour. So let's explore the opening words of this letter about God's grace. In verse 1 of chapter 1, Peter describes the people he's writing to as exiles scattered, exiles 
scattered. Literally, it, it's to be exiles of the dispersion. It's the idea of living as an expat. And it's stressful adapting to foreign cultures. I asked Maggie Cruz, one of our overseas gospel partners, what it had been like for her to move from a ministry in Africa, where she's been serving for a number of decades, to Cambodia. Now, she says, I'm still only six months in, but I'm feeling like a stranger in a strange land. And then what she did was she made a few comments about the big adjustments, for example, with language. In Africa, there were different languages, but often similar sounds and expressions. But in Cambodia, the pitch and the tone are different and they can sound even more foreign. Or when it comes to sense of humour, Africans are often gregarious. They love slapstick humour and a good belly laugh. But Cambodians are much more reserved with much stricter rules about who can relate to who and at what level. And there, there was one reflection that Maggie made that really stood out to me. I've not lived in a, in a country that has, in living memory, experienced genocide. The impact, she said, is still acute. But when Peter talks about exiles scattered, he's using Old Testament categories. He's describing the people of God who are living away from Jerusalem and the promised land. Um, think Abraham, the Exodus, or when God's people were deported to Babylon. But here's the thing. The first recipients of this letter were most likely still living in the towns that they were born in. I mean, for them, there was no culture shock in the sense of being a displaced national. So in what sense is Peter saying their exiles scattered? Well, this is a letter addressed not to Jews living away from Jerusalem or the temple, but to Christians living away from heaven, their ultimate home and dest destination. And if you're a believer, you should expect to feel different and expect to feel tension as you operate with a worldview that's shaped by God's word and the hope of heaven. It'll mean that we march to the beat of a different drum and different to the prevailing culture that we're embedded in. In verse 1, Peter then goes on. He describes God's people in these scattered places as God's elect. Then in verse 2, he describes them in this way. Those chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now, this sort of statement causes de debate among believers and unbelievers alike. How can it be that God decides before the foundation of the world who'll be in his family and who'll, who won't be? How can that be fair? After all, don't people exercise real choice to follow Jesus and to become Christians? And what's the point of telling people about Jesus? I mean, God's either chosen them or he hasn't, right? But this is a core biblical truth. God chooses us. His foreknowledge isn't just a matter of knowing in advance how it's all going to play out. No, no. God, out of his generosity, brings people into his family. And this truth, it's written not to generate theological debate, but it's meant to fill us with thankfulness 
and awe. When Steve Jobs, uh, the creator of Apple, when he was about seven years old, he tells a story about playing with a girl from across the road. He mentioned that he was adopted. And she then said to him, so does that mean your real parents didn't want you? Jobs said, lightning bolts just went off in my head. And I remember running home crying. And my parents said to me, no, Steve, you have to understand. And they were very serious. And they, they looked at me straight in the eye and they said, we specifically picked you out. Job said, both my parents said that and they repeated it slowly for me and they put the emphasis on every word in that sentence. We specifically picked you out. Job said, I've always felt special. My parents made me feel special. Are you a believer? Well, God specifically chose you to be part of his family. Now, the goal is not so much that you feel special, although that's true. Well, we see it in verse 3. So that you will live for the praise of the one who chose you. So, let's go further. What does it mean to be brought into God's family? I want to slow down a bit and reflect with you on verses 3 and 4 in this first chapter. Let's look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. New birth. I remember seeing a cartoon uh, with twins who were crowded into a womb and there was this uh, speech bubble off to one side with one of the twins saying to the other twin, don't be stupid. Who ever heard of life after birth? Now, every single one of us would say that birth radically changed the trajectory of our lives. I mean, one moment you're in a warm and sheltered environment and the next you're shoved out into a bright, cold, noisy world with someone shoving a tube down your throat to suck out the gunk and make you start breathing. Birth. But, but what's new birth? Well, it's to begin a new life which is dominated by a relationship with God. We see there in verse 3, it's to be given a living hope. There are two perspectives on life that are on view here. There's one life where you're born, you live, you make the most of your 70 or 80 years, and that's it. No future beyond it. And then there's the new life another life which is full of future and full of hope. But we do need to stop and understand the way the Bible is using hope here because it's not the way we tend to use it in 21st century Australia. Uh, so I could say I am hoping the Crows, who've lost all their opening games of the season in spectacular fashion, that they will win every game between now and the end of the year and manage to take out the premiership. Now, that sort of hope is wishful thinking. But here in verse 3, the hope is describing a definite thing. It's currently unseen, but it will certainly unfold. 
Now, what's this hope based on? Why is it so secure? Well, again, look at verse 3. It talks about new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Now, remember Peter, uh, the person who wrote this letter. It's the same Peter who turned his back on Jesus when he was on the cross, who despaired after Jesus was killed. But Peter's life was turned on its head when he came face to face with the risen Jesus. This real-time and space historical event, it changed everything. And Peter then dedicated his life to speaking about the risen Jesus and the new life that everyone can have who trusts in him. Now, tradition has it that Peter was later crucified upside down in Rome, just like his master. I mean, how can you risk your life like that? Well, it's only if you've been born again into a living hope. We've all heard it, haven't we? You only live once. People say it all the time, don't they? You only live once. And if that's true, all you can do is try and squeeze the most out of life and do your best to avoid anything that shortens your life or cuts across your enjoyment of your 80 years, you know, give or take. But if you can be born again, then everything changes, doesn't it? Your ambitions, your perspective on what's important, the lot. I want you to imagine for a moment that the, um, the current pandemic passes and you decide to celebrate by going on a an around-the-world holiday. So you organise a trip, business class, that will involve travelling tens of thousands of kilometres and visiting a stack of different and really interesting countries. Now imagine on your return, you get all your family and your friends around to your place for the mandatory PowerPoint presentation of the highlights from your holiday. And you've got, say, a thousand pictures. I guarantee that 990 of those pictures or slides will not be shots that you took from the back seat of the taxi on the way to the airport. Now, it is the same for those who have new birth. The 80 odd years now, it's only a scratch on the face of eternity. We have a living hope that's dominated by a future that overshadows our lives now and drives our ambitions and our hopes and our dreams. And this new birth means you get, look at verse 4 with me, an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Inheritances can be uh, unpredictable things. Uh, my wife's great aunt Jean died a few years back and she left us this, this extraordinary planter vase, large, heavy urn type thing with much glaze. Now, I've encouraged my boys over the years to use it for cricket stumps and other boisterous activities, but it's proven to be surprisingly resilient. But you know, most stuff in this world doesn't last. It has a use-by date. 
uh, our cars, our houses, our running shoes, our bodies. Our stuff can wear out or get stolen or even broken. But if you're born again, then we have an inheritance that cannot spoil, cannot fade and cannot perish. It can't be stolen because it's secure in heaven. It will be revealed, verse 5, in the last time when Jesus winds up the history of the world. And this heavenly inheritance, it's a wonderful thing, although it's not described in detail here, is it? If we went to other places in the New Testament, places like Revelation, it's pictured there as the time when God dwells with his people, those who are, are born again. A time when every tear is wiped away, where there's no more death or mourning, no more crying or pain. A time full of joy in the presence of God himself. Friends, it's this certain hope that sustains us and especially during challenging times. That's what Peter goes on to talk about in verse 6 of chapter 1. He says, In all this you rejoice greatly, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all types of trials. Now what's this um, little while that's been spoken of here? For a little while you may have to suffer. And is that a bad week or a bad month or a bad year? Now, I think the, the little while that's being talked about here is the period until the last time referred to in verse 6. That is, it's, it's until Jesus returns and ushers in eternity. The little while is the 70 or 80 years living as followers of Jesus in this world. And what sort of trials are being spoken of here? Well, Peter touches on them as he goes through this letter. If we went to chapter 2, verse 12, it talks about being accused of doing wrong or spoken of as evil. Or in chapter 2, verse 19, suffering unjustly. Or in chapter 3, verse 9, being insulted or mocked for being a follower of Jesus. Or in chapter 3, verse 13, suffering for doing what's right. Chapter 4, verse 4, being abused because you don't join in with their wild living. Or chapter 4, verse 14, being insulted because you identify with Jesus. It sounds pretty familiar and modern, really, doesn't it? In verse 7, it says this. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, he's not saying we should be masochists, Oh, I just love being insulted and a good beating and being tortured for my faith. No, that's not what's going on here. But as those who've been born again, God says he is refining us so that our trust in Jesus is growing more and more. So that we're being shaped for the eternity that we've been promised. The eternity that dominates our hearts now. And when you know that that's what God is doing, even through the trials, well, as it says in verse 9, it fills us with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Horatio Spafford was an American lawyer in the 1800s. 
He invested in real estate, but his fortune was decimated by the Great Fire of Chicago in 1871. Two years later, his wife and four daughters were able to go on a holiday to England. And on the 22nd of November, 1873, while the ship was crossing the Atlantic, it collided with another vessel and it sank. And Spafford's wife telegrammed him this short message. Saved alone. All four daughters had perished. Shortly afterwards, Spafford sailed to England on the same route to join his wife. And on that voyage, he wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul. The first verse goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. If I asked you what have been the most significant events and influences on your life, you know, the things that provide the secure anchors that ground you, what would you say? You know, would you tell me all about the taxi ride to the airport before the world trip? You know, earthbound stuff career, family, your achievements, the smart investments you've made that'll stand up during the current economic crisis. I mean, they're good things, but they're just too flimsy to build your life on, your identity on. Jesus is the one who said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or would you join with the Apostle Peter and say this? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given me new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade, kept in heaven for me. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonderful and glorious promises we have in the Lord Jesus Christ that secure us, not only now, but for all eternity. And we pray that these truths will shape our hearts and our minds and our behaviours. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.